us. Well, praise the Lord. Can I invite you to stand as we receive the gospel passage for this evening? The gospel for this evening is taken in the fifth chapter according to the gospel of St. Matthew, beginning at the 21st verse. Glory to Christ our Savior. Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, reading from verse 21 to verse 28. And Jesus said these words, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ our Lord. Church, will you please be seated? We want to continue on in our sermon series on what it means for us here in All Saints to be a church that is living and healthy. And so in this second half of the year, starting today, we'll be launching on this sermon series on the book of Paul's letter to the first Corinthians. And so with that, can I now ask you to turn with me as we look afresh to this passage that we're going to look in today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 17. <clears throat> and Paul writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sotanus, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place, Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree 
and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I, Paul, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, some things in life are best kept confidential. We don't air our dirty laundry out in the open to the public for everyone to hear or to see. And when you read Paul's first letter to Corinthians, as in any of the epistles, we are literally reading somebody else's personal mail as to what is going on in their lives. Now, this particular letter was addressed to the Christians in the city of Corinth. And I believe that these Christians here would prefer that this correspondent not be broadcast. Why? Because it diverged a number of things that they wish to have kept private within the church. However, as we eavesdrop into this exchange, we find that the Apostle Paul was actually giving pastoral instructions and he was giving practical advice to his readers regarding specific set of problems which might even prove helpful for all of us here today. But before doing so, it is vital that we sketch the background of this writing to bring us into context for our study over this letter. And so for a start, you find that according to the Scriptures, the Apostle Paul had a very close and long-standing personal and pastoral relationship with the people in Corinth. It all goes way back in AD 50, during his second missionary journey, where Paul founded the church there. And you can read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. And then we are also told that he further remained there for another 18 months to organize the church so that they can be up and running before he proceeded on to another city in Ephesus. However, not long after that, not long after his departure, word spread that problems arose within the church. And this prompted Paul to write a letter, the original first letter to the Corinthians, which unfortunately we do not have any access. Scholars have tell us that this lost letter apparently did not accomplish its desired effect. Why? Because news further reached the apostles' ear that from the house of Chloe, that there was a quarrel, implying that the problem in the church still persists. 
Now, this quarrel apparently was serious enough to warrant Paul's attention. Let me just say that, you know, it's easy for us at this point to assume that when you look at Chloe and ask, who is this woman? It's easy for us to assume that here was a complainer, you know, and even conclude that maybe Chloe was Paul's internal spy within the church, that Paul had placed Chloe there, you know, to spy for him, to, to report back to him all that was happening. But, you know, rather than thinking in this manner, I think we should applaud her. We should be commending this lady for her courage in not ignoring the problem that was in the church. You see, all too often in a church setting, we tend to portray ourselves as a, you know, perfect church with no issues. We invite our friends to come to our church and say that, yeah, we have no problems. We are living with one another in peace and love. But the truth is, we tend to sweep all these issues and problems under the carpet and then act as though all is well. But like I said, we need to commend Chloe. Why? Because here was someone, a person who was so burdened over the situation that she was not afraid to confront Paul about it and to tell her and to tell Paul that there is a situation. My prayer is that this will be our attitude here in All Saints. That we all be like a Chloe. That we don't hide our issues, our relationship that has gone wrong with one another, our problems, the, the thing that I don't like, that we don't keep it under the carpet, but we deal with it as Paul would do so. And so as we see what, was Paul, what did Paul do in response to this report from Chloe, we are told that he wrote this letter that we know now as 1 Corinthians. So what exactly then was the serious issue that plagued the faith community in this city? You see, as we will encounter along the way, we find that this church, the church in Corinth, was number one, a defiled church. Why was it defiled? Because the people there were not living to God's holy standard. They called themselves Christians, but they were not living to God's expectation. Several of the members, they were guilty of sexual immorality. And later on, you'll find that some of them even got drunk during worship service. Still others were using the graces of God as an excuse for worldly lifestyle. Second, you find that the church in Corinth was equally guilty of being a divided church. It was a church where there were many members vying for power and prominence. They want, you know, their name to be heard. They want their voice to be heard. Verse 12 points out that there were at least four different factions competing for leadership and which we will look at in a moment or so. And all of this further informs us that the congregation in Corinth was also a disgraced church. Instead of glorifying God, they opt to bicker, they prefer to constantly fight with each other, thereby neglecting and hindering the progress of the, of the gospel. Their focus was all on the self 
rather than God. Now, before we start to condemn the Corinthian church for the mess that they were in, I think it's good to be mindful that you and I, you know, all saints, we can easily end up just like them. Because bear in mind, Corinth at the time was, a, was very much like Singapore, a cosmopolitan and populated city. It was a prosperous commercial crossroad with two ports overlooking a major east-west trade route. And not to mention that it was a region pride with many philosophies, you know, teachers wanting to promote their ideologies, wanting to impart their so-called wisdom. It was truly a busy, thriving, affluent, proud, and permissive city. It was populated with every kind of vice, wickedness, and worldly pleasure, which somehow have infiltrated into the local assembly and greatly influenced the church thus defiling it. And this led to this great divide within the church that Paul talks about today. And you know, as we are aware, the Bible tells us that divisions, factions, disunity are something which God despises. It is there. It is a major concern among God's people. But yet, it is something that God despises. So how then did Paul counter this particular problem within the church? Well, he did this by reminding the Corinthians of two of their callings. And it's the same calling that we need to be reminded of. And the first calling is this. It is their call to be saints. It is a call to holiness. You see, who or what we are in Christ ought to lead us to the corresponding practices in our daily lives. If you're called to be a doctor, your life ought to be manifest by saving people. If your life is called to be a policeman, your life must be manifest by saving people also. But all too often, as fallen creatures, we fail to connect the two. And this is why we find that Paul opens this chapter with the following verse, describing the church in Corinth, reminding them who they are. He says in verse 2, that you are a church sanctified in Christ Jesus, and you as a church, you are called to be saints. Now the word church in the Greek refers to a called out people. So Paul was simply reminding the Corinthian church of this unique calling. And specifically, he was drawing the attention by emphasizing that you are called as saints. Now, normally we know a saint refers to a dead person who is revered and honored by those who are alive due to their holy living. For instance, we, 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 we call Andrew St. Andrews. You know, in our Anglican uh, uh, diocese, we have uh, uh, St. Peter, St. Paul, and so forth. But in this case... Paul was referring to living saints. People who've been set apart through the faith in Jesus, working out His purposes. And to help us comprehend this concept of what it means to be set apart, the marriage analogy comes in very useful. You see, when a man and a woman pledge their love to each other, they 
are being set apart. Any other relationship outside this union is seen to be sinful. And so in the same manner, as disciples of Jesus, we belong completely to Jesus. And as saints, we are therefore set apart for Him and for Him alone. So you see, Paul insisting that the Corinthians are set apart, he was really echoing God's call of Israel as an example to them. You see, like Israel, the church of God, the church as God's holy people are to be different from the world. Despite being a predominantly Gentile group, the Corinthians were now members of the covenant people of God as a result of Christ crucified. So whatever their past background, because of what Christ did on the cross, they are now part of God's family. They are now set apart. They are now considered saints. They now represent God's kingdom to a world that does not know God. And get this, being God's covenant people, and we are all God's covenant people, entails certain obligation and obedience. Certain norms and standards must be kept and followed. Our lifestyle and action must be different from the world. If the world practices this, we cannot say we follow them because our lifestyle, expectation, our standards are different from the world. And this is why Paul writes telling the Corinthian Christians, recognizing them as saints, saying that you are people who are sanctified, you are people who are set apart, you must live out holy lives acceptable to God, and this does not include the things that he was going to point out in a moment. This then is the expected practice upon knowing who they are, their identity in Christ. Now bear in mind, that Paul, when Paul uses this term as saints, he does not just apply only to a few individuals, you know. It was a recognition that all members of the faith everywhere, that as long as you are a believer, you may not be in the church of Corinth, you may be in the church of Ephesus, you are all called saints. So in other words, we form part of a worldwide fellowship together with all those in every place who call themselves the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, when you as a default saint, you not only sin against the Lord, you sin against one another. Moving on then to the next section in verses 4 to 8. Paul continues to say that, you know, he thanked God that they are as saints, they, they, they are the, the, the church in Corinth, they were in every way enriched in all speech and knowledge. And this implication that the Corinthians just were especially rich in the spiritual gift. It sounds as though the church there was a perfect place, complete, self-sufficient. But Paul says, no, you're not blameless. You're not blameless. Why? Because Paul highlighted that you were not using, that the Corinthians were not using their gift in a spiritual manner. Yes, they may be elect people. Yes, they may be enriched people. Yes, they may be called saints. They were called by God to be set apart for His holy glory. This itself would motivate them towards living a holy and peaceful life. 
But yet, as Paul reveals, their practice was not in accordance with their calling. And so I pose this question to all of us here. We call ourselves all saints, in case you didn't realize that. Paul, calls, Paul tells us that we're all saints, and we are all saints. So the question I pose to you, all saints, is this. Do we reflect this holy lifestyle as God's people? Are we a church living out sanctified lives as saints? Or are we a church that is defiled, divided, and a disgrace in the sight of God? Something serious for us to ponder. Let's move on. As saints redeemed by Christ on the cross, Paul further says that we should also put aside our differences and come into fellowship with one another. So the first call is a call that you are called to be saints. The second call is a call to fellowship. Paul says in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now let's unpack this word fellowship in Greek. In Greek, this word means koinonia, And it's a word that refers to that spiritual relationship to Jesus as well as to the community of God's people. The calling here is not just to perform, you know, a mission or to obey certain norms. No, when we talk about fellowship, it is a call to a relationship of intimate mutuality with one another in Christ. And so when we have this commonality in Jesus, because you and I are Christians, we, are, we have this fellowship in Christ. Should we therefore have any faction, have any argument, should we therefore have any division, disunity within the assembly? The answer, of course, should be no. But yet we find that Paul puts this plea in verse 10. He tells the people, I appeal to you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no division among you, but that you may be united. So there was disunity within the church. And Paul was telling them, how can that be? If we are called into this fellowship, if we are called as saints, we come under the same family, we come under the same umbrella, we should not have that disunity at all. And so what was this disunity? We now come to the grip as to what this quarrel was all about that was brought up by Chloe. Apparently, we find that the church was torn by division. You see, when Paul left the Corinthian church, it was relatively in harmonious condition. But now, as we have heard, quarrels rose between four major groups splitting over the church. One favoured Paul. Another said, I prefer Peter. <coughs> A third group was committed to Apollos while the last claimed to be faithful to Christ. Shockingly, the Corinthians had succeeded in dividing up the body of Christ. No wonder Paul lamented in verse 13. He cried out to them, Is Christ divided? 
is Christ divided? So what were the cause for the purpose of this various group? You find that there's no evidence in the text to suggest that they were divided by doctrines. No. The issue here was really of personality. You see, the groups were celebrity cults that were separated by pride, by jealousy, boastfulness, self-righteousness, and all these things greatly distress the apostle. You know, a deeper understanding of the problem reveals to us that we human nature, we have this tendency to want to follow successful people. Isn't that true? We tend to gravitate towards people who are popular or to the well-known leaders. But hey, these popular and well-known leaders or even spiritual leaders, they may not be correct. They may be wrong. But nevertheless, we tend to gravitate towards them. And, it's, and in this instance, instead of emphasizing on the importance of the message, the Corinthian church tend to emphasize on the messenger. They tend to focus on, the, on their ability, on their presentation, on their rhetorical skills. Another great concern for Paul, which we will look at next week. So instead of looking at what is important, they look at something else. And you know, sadly, <clears throat> this is manifested in today's context, even in the church. I probably shared this before, but I guess it's good to bring this up again. There was an incident where I remembered a friend from a mega church. After service, he came to me. He wanted to share with me what he learned from the passage. And the first word that came out from his mouth was this. He said this, Pastor so-and-so said this today. Pastor so-and-so's message was this. You get the hint? The emphasis here was on proudly on their pastor. How good his message was. How good his presentation was. It was never on what the Word of God said. The emphasis was on the preacher and not on the truth of the message. In other words, they had gotten their eyes off the Lord and on the popularity on the Lord's servant. Hence, you know, we believe in this notion <coughs> that the bigger the church, the better it is. Which further explains why many people, and even celebrities, they tend to flock over to these churches and not to small ones like us in All Saints. But as Paul later was stressed in chapter 3, he tells the church, there can be no competition among true servants of God. So when we start to compare, when we start to say, I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Cephas, what are we doing? We are sinning against God. Why? Because when church people start to compare their pastors and their popularity in the eyes of God, that's a sin. So Paul's response to the people then is simply this. He questioned them. He told them these three questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now let's break down these three questions to grasp Paul's theological implication here. 
Question one, is Christ divided? That is to say, Paul is telling them, is, is there more than one Christ or, or, or has Christ been shared out? No, the answer is no. The very idea itself is preposterous. There is only one Jesus. Question two, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, Paul is telling them, were the Corinthians trusting in their salvation in Paul being crucified for them? Again, this is ludicrous and even blasphemous. Why? Because Jesus alone is our crucified Savior whom we should put our trust in. Question three, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now we know that baptism is our allegiance to Christ. What matters in our baptism is not the person who baptized you, but the person into whom we are baptized. You know the difference? Let me say that again. Huh? What matters in our baptism is not the person whom baptized you. That means to say, I may baptize you, but I'm not important. But more important is the person into whom you are baptized, and you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the issue for the Corinthians here is really whether they were exalting the human baptizer or they were focusing on the divine Christ. And as you can see, this effect of the Corinthians' division was really to undermine the essentials of the gospel. It was to deny that there is only one Christ who has crucified for us all. They were ineffectively insulting Christ by dislodging Him from His supremacy and replacing Him with human leaders. And so Paul, in his counsel, he was redirecting them back to Jesus as the only source of unity. It's only in the name of Jesus that we are baptized and enter into this fellowship of God's family. It's only through Jesus' death on the cross that He becomes our Savior. So who is Paul? Who is Peter? Who is Apollos? They're not important. What matters is the name of Jesus. And that is why his appeal in verse 10, he says, let there be no division among you, but that you be united. And as saints in the fellowship with God and one another, our goal our focus must always be for the glory of God. And the glory of God is to preach the gospel, to go out into this world, to live out our vision of being a church that is discipling one another, the vision of sharing the good news and bringing people into the kingdom. In closing then, you know, I believe what greatly upsets the Lord are really factions and divisions that are seen within the church today. And we in all saints, we are no different. We do have divisions among us. And sometimes as I reflect over this passage, the lesson for us is that we have this vision, and sometimes this division can cause that disunity. And the truth really is this. Some of these problems that we face let me just say, sometimes it's so insignificant. You know, I've been here for three and a half years. I'm not proud to say this, but it's sad. And some of you know, we have people who left the church. I don't 
My heart bleeds when I hear people saying that they want to leave the church. And sometimes when I hear the reason why they want to leave the church, the issues are really so insignificant. And even some of us right now, we are facing some of these issues today in the church. And we cannot resolve them. And some of the problems that we face are simply things like this, you know. <coughs> I don't like the worship style. I like to sing hymns. I want to sing this type of songs. Or I like the worship leader. If, if, if my favorite worship leader is up there, I will only come and worship. If it's someone else, I won't worship. For some of us, it may even be the preacher or the leaders. I like Pastor Mabel's sermon. I don't like Pastor Darren's sermon. I like older, experienced preachers. I don't like the young preachers. You know, if you start to think like that, church, let me say that you are equally guilty as the Corinthian church in creating faction within us. It could also be perhaps that some of us here, we are sensitive creatures. And when things don't go our way, or sometimes you interpret things that have been said wrongly, we don't agree with certain things, we react. We react and we leave the church. And sometimes the problem is not the church. The problem is us. I want us to pause and listen to this video. You got angry in church and you stopped being the member of the choir. You left ushering. You stopped the sanctuary cleaning and every other work you were doing in church. Eventually, <laughs> you stopped going to church simply because somebody spoke to you in a way you do not like. <laughs> Most of the messages from the pulpit are against you in your opinion. Nobody called you when you were sick, nor visit. So according to you, that church neither love nor care. But excuse me, you've not stopped working for the boss who insults you every day at work. Neither have you quit your job because of your colleagues who speak ill of you. I guess the money is the reason. When you were sick, you didn't wait for your boss to come looking for you or put a call through to you. Rather, you were the one who called him to explain your present condition. I guess you were scared he may fire you. Do you remember that at school, both primary and secondary, people insulted you, your teachers, your colleagues, your classmates? They offended you, but you didn't stop schooling. But in church, when people offend you, you get angry and leave the church. You can easily miss church but not lectures because you know the lecturers will take attendance which counts as your continuous assessment. 
You can be late with your appointment with God in church. But you'll be extra hours early at an interview for your visa at the embassy. <laughs> who is deceiving who? Well, I don't blame you. I don't blame you too much. Listen to me. The church is not a no offense zone. It's not a place where you will never be offended. Where all things must be done to please you and you alone. No. What have you done to please others in church? Or what have you done in the church for the good of others? Maybe you do not know or you do not have enough revelation about what church is. According to scriptures, the church is the house of God. It is the gateway of heaven. Genesis chapter 28 verse 17. So your charisma can take you there. But your spirituality and salvation is what will determine whether you will enter or not. Your service to God must be with reverential fear, respect, and honor. Brother, sister, God is watching. <laughs> Change your attitude. So what is our got attitude? What is our attitude? To end off, I want to say that we need to keep things in the correct perspective. You know, when you look around us today, our world is seriously struggling to cope with climate change. Our world is seriously experiencing more natural disasters. Floods, earthquakes, they're all everywhere. Our world is seriously facing poverty. Our world is seriously engaging in wars where leaders cannot agree and live in harmony. Our world is seriously where we see change in morals, where lawlessness, violence, and death are on, on the rise. Our world is currently going through this current pandemic. And yet, what are we doing in this church? We are bickering over small, petty incidents. I cannot get along with you. You say something that hurt me. And instead of being saints that the Bible teaches us that we need to forgive one another, we sweep things under the carpet, we react, we complain, and we leave the church. You know, if we cannot do this simple thing of being in harmony together, forgiving one another when someone has done harm to you, don't forget about going out into the field. Don't forget about reaching out, of living out this vision of wanting to be a church that lives out this lifestyle of evangelism and a culture of discipleship. Because it starts with us here right now. Paul reminds us of this calling. You and I, we are called saints. And as saints, we are to live holy and pleasing life, which means as far as possible, no quarrels. But if there is quarrel, 
then forgiveness must prevail. And as Matthew tells us in chapter 5, verse 24 and 25, the words of Jesus himself. That if you come to church, you want to offer your offering, but you remember you have an offense against someone, what do you do? Reconcile. Reconcile. And today we are going to serve Holy Communion. <coughs> Part of our liturgy. And I will want Pastor Gilbert to recite that part. The peace. That's the part of the peace that tells us that we will need to pursue that peace. That if you have something against one another, pursue that peace. Make peace with one another. Paul also reminds us that we are called into this fellowship. You and I, we are baptized into the same name and into the same family. Jesus died on the cross for you and me. He is your Savior as well as mine. And because of this, we all come under the same fellowship. Shouldn't this alone motivate you and I to live together as one, to live as a church without any faction? Let's pray. Father, indeed, we are mindful that as your church, we are not perfect. Father, we are mindful that at times we have disappointed you, for your word has reminded us that you truly despise all the pains, all that disunity that is going on around in the church. And so, Father, we just want to come into a time of repentance. That truly, Lord, if we have any one of us here present today in the sanctuary, or maybe those of us tuning in online, if, Father, we, if we still have some grudge, if we still have some unforgiveness, whoever that person may be, Father, help us through your Holy Spirit today to minister, to speak to us. Because we want to be a church that is growing. We want to be a church that is living. We want to be a church that is moved by you. So Father, as we have learned in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, may you challenge us that as we recite the words that we're going to recite later on, that we work for peace. We will pursue that peace. So help us, Lord, as we commit each and every one of ourselves into your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.